0: Well, good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> First
1: Peter is where we are, so I would invite you to turn in uh, your copy of God's Word to that, specifically chapter 5, looking today at verses 10 and 11. If you don't have a Bible, please grab a, one of those blue ones, probably located underneath the seat around you. You can use that one and turn in that Bible to page 1,000. I think it's still 16, 1016, which will bring you to our text this morning.
0: So, um,
1: I'm curious to see how today's going to go. I really don't know. It's one of those... (laughs) days for me. We're we're only going to begin to look at verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 5. So this is actually going to be a part one. okay? Um, And the reason why is because I have two things I want to address concerning the text we covered last time, or verses 8 and 9. The first thing is I want to answer a question that was asked by a few people uh, concerning that sermon, after the sermon. And I thought if a few people asked it, there may be a few others who didn't ask and who were also asking the same question, so I thought it would be good, and it was a good question, so I wanted to, uh, to address it. And the second thing is the last phrase of verse 9, I didn't even get to it because, as usual, I ran out of time. I was actually overtime. So consequently, we're going to um, take two Sundays to cover verses 10 through 11, which is good anyway. I'd like to be in that passage for two Sundays because it's just a beautiful text. And uh, good to be reminded about the things that we'll see there a couple of times. So be sure then to come next Sunday, but as was already announced, not here, but at our temporary new location, just for one Sunday. Uh, And they're they're doing some, you know, if you come back and you're like, I don't see any renovation, they're just doing audio video. I don't know exactly, uh, but I guess we can't be in here. They're going to spend the whole month doing it, but that week is when they're doing Uh, demolition, hopefully. And pray for that, too. We're hoping that all goes to plan and we're not booted out another Sunday. So we're hoping it is just one. So pray for the construction team, if you would, that they can get the project done on time and according to the schedule that they have given. All right? But next Sunday, we're at the school. It's just east from here. So please, uh, we'd like you all to be there. We'd like you to come because we want to, we want to check it out. We want to see what it would be, see if we can fit in there and everything, and as a possible place that we could use in the future when if this place was not available to us. So we really want to give it a good test run, which means we want y'all there. On top of that, you're not going to get the rest of the sermon at least in person uh, unless you come. All right, so I'd love for y'all to be there. Will you come next week to the new location? To the new location, not here. Okay, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and also, we're celebrating communion. Okay, so good to be part of that corporate celebration of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. Okay, here we go. All right, so I didn't want to make it a part two from last time. I just wanted to like cover these two issues, and then, and it is the context of the passage that we're in today, verses ten through eleven. So it's unorthodox, but uh, I'm a little unorthodox in these this way. So here we go. The last sermon that I did, and if you were here, great. If not. Um, it'll be okay. You'll, you'll be all right. Uh, just listen to that sermon when you get the chance. I called it The Adversary. The Adversary. That was the title, if you might remember. Let me read that text for you, and then I'll address these things. Uh, Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful, in verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right. I didn't read this last time, but I wanted to read it. It kind of flows right into what I want to address. Uh, It's a quote from John Piper. I really liked it. And we were just addressing the issue of the the adversary is a real person. Satan is who it is. We have a real adversary. He's not uh, some made up, some fictitious uh, being. And even though Uh, Many in our world would believe that, that it's just, you know, a fantasy. But Piper says, I believe, listen, I believe there is a Satan precisely because I believe in Jesus. That's interesting. Yeah. If Satan is our mythological holdover from a pre-scientific age, then the lifelong struggle of our Lord Jesus was mere shadow boxing. Take Satan and his forces out of the Gospels, and Jesus is left like a fool punching the air. From the beginning of his ministry to the end, Jesus was in conflict with the powers of darkness. And it is the clear teaching of the apostles, Peter, James, John, and Paul, that Satan is against the church, that's us, and must be resisted by faith and the word of God, which we addressed from this section last week. Standing firm. How do we resist him? By standing firm on the word of God, right? Right? The Gospels, our Christian faith. He closes by saying, we do well to know his tactics. Yeah? That's half the battle, knowing the enemy's tactics. How does he attack? In what ways does he attack? And concerning his tactics, I said last time, and I was quoting just John MacArthur. This is his note in his study Bible. Great study Bible to be using. He writes, he... Satan and his forces are always active, looking for opportunities to overwhelm the believer with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. Okay, That's his his tactic. That's how he, he looks to undermine the believer and their faith. But how does he do that? Well, beloved, just walking you through this, and we're getting to the question here, Satan... One way he does that is he works through fallen people. He works through fallen people, or those that are still trapped in darkness, okay? So he works, how does persecution come? Through persecutors. Uh, how, does, how does discouragement come? Often through discouragers, okay? How does temptation come? Often through tempters, people, through their actions and their words. People who are still children of the devil, because they have not yet given their lives to the Lord, Jesus Christ. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy when he's addressing false teachers, also a tool of the devil, using to spread his lies, that he might undermine Christians' faith, okay, or keep people from ever coming to the true Christ and the true gospel. But here in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, because they're going to have to, they're going to face evil in this world, correcting his opponents with gentleness, those who come against the gospel, but correcting them with gentleness. And then he says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare Of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay? So, a Christian's troubles in this world can come through those captured by the devil to do his will. Prior to the work of God's saving grace in your life, you were captured by the devil to do his will. But God intervened and broke in. Glory to him, yeah? Glory to him. He rescued you, he pulled those blinders off and he allowed you to see the light and the glory of God and Jesus Christ in the gospel and he gave you the faith to believe and to repent and now you are outside of that dark domain living
0: in the light of God,
1: right? Glory be to God, but for those that still remain, those are the devil's toolbox. So, there's no doubt that some of the persecution that these these readers, uh, Peter's readers, were experiencing at the hands of those who were held captive by the devil to do his will, and through those means, Satan would bring trouble into these Christian lives. Okay, so he uses people. He also, as I mentioned already, uses his lies. He uses his lies and through people, right? He promotes his lying through people. So I said this last time, John 8, 44 says, he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, it says that because go all the way back to the first two people, the Garden of Eden. Who was there? The devil, the serpent. It began there. And his deception and his lies begin there deceiving Eve, and leading humanity into sin and rebellion against God. Now there, there was nobody to use, so he just shows up, right, personally. But today he has no need to do that. He's got plenty of people to use to accomplish his purposes and spreading his lies. And and the Bible is, is filled with warnings about these kind of people, false teachers, deceivers, yeah? lying and partial truths you know i told you last time in revelation it says that in the end satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and ultimately the nations will come against if you can believe this or not we believe it because the scriptures say it but it's so mind-boggling will come against the lord jesus christ who's ruling from his kingdom they'll come against him are you kidding me how much deception does it take to make that happen but how's he going to do that I don't think Satan's gonna you know, actually personally appear and go, hey, I, I wanna deceive you. He won't need to because in the kingdom there will be people born who outwardly are in compliance with the Lord because if they're not, they're crushed immediately, but inwardly, rebellion, rebellion still. They're still caught up in their sin. They still haven't surrendered their heart. Externally, they have to comply or they die. But internally, they're still wicked. And so those are the folks that Satan will gather together, those still held captive by him to do his will. And I'm sure he'll use those people to convince those people that this is a good idea. Come against the Lord, we can overtake him, which they'll find out right away, as you know, because we know the end of the story. It does not go well at all for them, right? Okay? Deceiver. Ah, So... One of our adversary's tactics is to deceive through his lies. I said this last time, or his partial truths. So he spreads, he speaks through his people lies about God, about life, about the world, about the gospel. Okay? Lies. Lies. False teachers. Lies. So now going back, what were the lies? that we know of that existed in first century period of time that these Christians lived in. Well, I've I've said this to you before, but let me remind you. Paganism was the thing, the worship of a multitude of gods. The world was not unreligious. The world was very religious. So much so, and I've said this also before, Christians were referred to as atheists. Why? Because they denied all of the other gods their reality, their existence. They said those aren't real gods, and they believed in the one true God. So all the pagans said, you're atheist. Can you believe that? What a change, right, from now. Very religious world, but common in paganism, which is a big fat lie, common in paganism is this. If you please your idol, either through sacrifice or through work or whatever, um, if you please your idol, your God, things will go well for you. And if not, they won't, okay? That was a, that's a basic lie within paganism. If you, if you do this, if you make this sacrifice, even to the degree of sometimes for some God sacrificing a human being, a child, if you do this, or if you bring us food and lay it on the altar, if you do these things, or you obey whatever we say, then and only then will we shower you with our goodness. And if, if you don't make us happy at any moment, then you can expect really bad things to be occurring in your life. Your crops won't grow, you won't conceive, so on and so forth. Paganism. okay. It's similar to Karma which sadly I hear Christians
0: express as if that's right. Karma is a big, fat, satanic lie.
1: So karma is the idea, just generally speaking, that you know what goes around comes around. So if you do good either in this life or depending on what system you're thinking about, a past life, I guess, then good will come to you. And if you did bad, then bad will come to you. Karma, you with me? Beloved, that's not Christian, okay? I'm just letting you know right now. That's not Christian. So stop talking about karma. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's a big, fat lie. I'm going to connect this, I promise. I'm going to connect it all together. And so what ends up happening is people go, they look at people who are suffering or in misery, and they go, well, karma. They must have done something bad to get that. Or things are going well for them, and they go, wow, they must be really good people. Not necessarily. So it's not a Christian worldview. So now let me read you this. Okay? So think about the lies of paganism that existed among these Christians who had come out of paganism. But they were, they had those lies. Right? They had, they had lived under those lies for a long time. Sometimes it's hard to get lies out of your head. Yeah? They've been there for a while. Takes time to work out all that junk.
0: Listen to what the Apostle Paul, this is going to be so fun today. I don't, we'll see where we go here.
1: Slow down clock. <laughs> here we go. 2 Corinthians 11. And don't say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Slow down. See, that's not Yes, a misapplication, but I'm just, I wish it would slow down. So here we go. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. This is what the scriptures say. Five times, the apostle Paul, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Just understand, 40 lashes less one. The law says if they went over 40, uh, they violated the law of the persecutor, the one delivering the blows, they could be in trouble. They violated the law. So they just always did one less to make sure they didn't go over because in the hitting, they might lose count. That's why it says 40 less one. Just in case, right? So 39 lashes, Uh, pretty severe. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on freaking journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Like There's nowhere I can go without facing danger. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, those pretending to be Christians and they're not. In toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in gold and exposure.
0: Question. Did these things happen because Paul wasn't pleasing his God? Or was Paul's suffering related to being an evildoer of some sort?
1: We know the answer, right? No, not at all. In fact, these sufferings... It's the exact opposite, beloved. These sufferings came as a result of being faithful to the one true God. These hardships, these toils, these dangers, these weren't just dangers in the sense of that every danger, you know, I'm in a bad neighborhood kind of danger. They're dangers related to him being a proclaimer and an ambassador of Jesus Christ and making him known in this dark world. And so he, he got this stuff for it. He suffered. Okay? So see, what do you do that with karma then, right? That doesn't work. What do you do with paganism that says he must be doing something wrong? He's doing nothing wrong. He's doing it right. He's faithfully following his
0: God, loving him, making him known, and suffering for it. Jesus hold his followers that in this world they would have troubles
1: john 16 do you remember in this world you'll
0: have troubles but i love what he says yet take heart i've overcome the world yeah and we'll see that when the king comes again we'll
1: see the full reality of that but for the time being we're gonna have troubles okay? We're going to have troubles as Christians as we live for Jesus Christ. So I told you like in 1 Peter 4.12, where Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, to prove you, and to purify you, as we went through that text, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why might they be surprised? I, I told you, I think it's because of The false lies of paganism, because what's going on? We're obeying the Lord. Why are things not going well? Why are we getting beat up for it? Why are we getting mistreated? Why are we being slandered? Because in this life, you're going to have troubles as you follow Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lies of paganism. God is not angry with you. He's delighting in you. And know this, he's sovereign over these trials, baby. And he's going to take them and use them to, to prove you, to purify you, to make you more like Jesus. God's got this. God's got you. You're not doing anything wrong. Stay the course. Stay faithful. Right? So again, don't believe the lies. Or where he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, First Peter 4.16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Because right? you can see, wow, look at that suffering. Wow, that's shameful. As if, as if you've done something wrong, you've done nothing wrong. Don't be ashamed. Rejoice that you bear that name. And as the bearer of that name, you bear suffering. Rejoice. You're united with Christ. And you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice. If the Christian is surprised or ashamed, then then listen, listen, then they have bought into some lie of the devil or not believe the truth of God's word. You're probably wondering what that question was that I got asked. I'm going to get there. And last time, understanding that is one of the ways or tactics that God, or one of the ways or tactics that the enemy, the adversary, works, through lies, through deceptions, okay, I quoted someone, and I think this is what caused the questions. I quoted a pastor who said his strategy, the enemies, is often to hit you when you're under, the enemy or his companions, minions, demons, is to hit you when you're under some intense trial by suggesting either, so additional lies, God isn't strong enough to deliver you, or something like, obviously he doesn't care if this is how he treats his people, then why are you following him? That's an example of a lie uh, that a Christian might be hit with. Lies like that, by the way, are not uncommon to hear in our world, in our unbelieving world. Those kind of things are suggested that God is not all powerful. And if he is, then obviously he's a weird or strange God that he would let these things happen to people, so on and so forth. Those lies are out there, right? I also went on to say, or if you fall into some sin, he'll accuse your conscience even after you've confessed your sin by saying some Christian you are. What makes you think you can be forgiven for that one? Again, that idea is out there and is certainly spread by false teachers. It's very pervasive in our world that you are not forgiven until you do something else or you got to somehow earn forgiveness or merit, you know, that forgiveness before God through some sacrificial system or uh, way or whatever, a routine. So, I think in reading that, the question that came up is, can the devil actually put thoughts in the believer's mind? That was the question. In other words, if this false thinking is coming, where is it coming from? Are you suggesting? Because when I read it, it sounds like maybe Satan comes and he goes, poop, right? He's here and he, he whispers in your ear these thoughts. So I want to answer that question, and it was, it's a two-fold question. Can Satan put thoughts in the believer's mind and... on top of that can satan read the believer's mind or any mind for that matter okay let me answer the the last one can satan read the believer's mind no we have no nothing in the scriptures that even come close to suggesting such a thing i mean that would imply that that he is all-knowing he is not now god knows your mind knows your heart knows every detail about you think on that but glory be to God that he loves his children and cares for his children, okay? Now, can you imagine if Satan knew every thought and everything, every detail, intimate detail about you and knowing that he wants to destroy you and he had all that ammunition as well? Oh my goodness, we'd be in trouble. But he does not. He cannot read a person's mind. Now, can he actually put thoughts into the believer's mind? This is what I would say. Some uh, reputable, respectable Christian scholars suggest that maybe he can, or that he does, that he can put thoughts, evil thoughts, such as God doesn't care about you, into your mind. Okay. Others do not believe that is the case. I don't believe that is the case. I don't believe it's the case. Uh, Nowhere in the scriptures are we told that explicitly, that Satan actually whispers, or his demons, come alongside you. You know, like the the thing up here, come alongside you and whisper evil thoughts into the Christian's mind. I don't think so. Um, Either way, we have no evidence of that in the Scriptures, and that's our authority. Yes? Okay. So, some verses will be given sometimes that You could take and try to say, they definitely don't say it explicitly, but you could try to say they imply that maybe Satan does something like that, but nowhere is it laid out like that in the scriptures, and those same passages could be understood in a different way as not meaning that, that Satan actually is whispering thoughts into the believer's mind or heart. Here's what I would feel comfortable saying, because this is part of his tactics, That sinful or evil thoughts are often a product of our fallen flesh. Okay? See, we need to be careful here, because then it's like, everything is on Satan. So this thought that's in my head is on Satan. You know what? Okay, hold on a second. So I'm going to connect it, but honestly, we have three enemies, right? The adversary, the devil, the world, fallen world. And the flesh, yes, our fallen flesh that we still retain for the time being until we're resurrected, glory to God, yeah? And we get our new glorified bodies. This is why we long for that. We long, you know, for him to return and for him to give us glorified bodies or for us to go and be home with the Lord. So, where am I? Oh, so... I would feel, I'm comfortable saying, because the Bible supports it, that sinful or evil thoughts are often a product of our fallen flesh. They arise from corrupted, deceitful hearts, right? The the remnants of our old man. But, but, an ally or collaborator to our fallen flesh is this fallen world who Satan happens to be the god of. According to the scriptures, Satan has been given some dominion over this world, which is why it's in the mess that it is. Second Corinthians four,
0: four. So I had, by the way, I had an article. I'm not going to read it. What I what I want to recommend to
1: you is uh, there's a website called GotQuestions.org. GotQuestions.org. It's a great uh, resource. Just You can type in a question. Generally, it has a good biblical answer. And you can look up, how is Satan God of this world? And they give a very uh, good explanation. But honestly, he, these false philosophies, these satan- they're satanic philosophies, beloved. Philosophies and, and things that you hear in places in our world. Who's the originator of that garbage? Satan. Things that stand against God, that question God, His goodness, His character, uh, lies about you, lies about the world. Satanic Evolution itself, the idea that we came from you know a bunch of goo and there is no creator, and we're just here by chance, Satanic. So why so? In that regard, then, what I'm saying is is that Christians, we live in this fallen world, yes? A world that is under the dominion of the God of this world who is Satan, who is the adversary, whose tactic is to spread lies and half-truths and put out deceptions and false philosophies, anything, anything to undermine God. He hates them so much. Anything to undermine the people of God, to ruin them, to, to cause them to be discouraged, anything to keep people from coming to God. So he doesn't care. He doesn't care if they go to every other false religion. Get on with it, get on, go, go, he's happy. Just don't turn to the one true God. You ever wonder why Mormonism does so well? The God of this world, that's why it does so well. He's happy to see people run off into it, okay? But we live in this world and we absorb this junk and we may have had a lot of that junk before God opened our eyes and gave us a new heart and led us unto Christ, yeah? And it's still still sometimes rumbling around in there. So in that sense, then, I would say that Satan ultimately is, your flesh is is working with, in conjunction with satanic lies, bringing those to your mind at the appropriate time because your flesh wants to see you fall too. Your fallen flesh wants to see you fall. Yeah, and wants to ruin you. And then Satan's got his, the world, he's working, you're living in that. So that's how these attacks, I would say, come against you. You pick this junk up and then your flesh reminds you of that junk that you picked up. But that junk was originated by Satan. Started in the garden, who he's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning if you can believe God. He's suggesting they can be like God. Oh my goodness, those are all the lies that still exist today. And so he is the originator of such things. And then it's not that Satan's like in the believer's mind. It's just that you got junk. So listen, this is why 2 Corinthians 10.5, a passage like this is so important. Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You take every thought captive and you make it obey Christ. And if it isn't in line with the gospel and the scriptures, then it has no room or should have no room with you. No place to stay. You eject it. You reject it. You repent of it. And you, will, and you believe and you embrace the truth of the word. So, when I was doing like a searching things out, I was searching things out, and I was saying, hey, you know, just seeing what people said, does the devil put thoughts into your mind? One person said, I, he said, listen, we are to guard our heart and mind. We are to take, take captive every thought, which is Second Corinthians ten five. It doesn't matter where it comes from, does it? I mean, in the end, it, it doesn't really matter, even if That is possible, which I don't think, we don't have any evidence of it in the scriptures, but if it's possible that Satan could whisper uh, an evil thought into your mind, he doesn't need to because they're all around you and your flesh embraces them, your fallen flesh. But even if that possible doesn't matter where it comes from, ultimately, you can't prove where it comes from, so it doesn't really make any difference. The bottom line is we need to make sure that we are thinking biblically. So, beloved, every counseling session I've ever done with anybody who needs help and is hurting, it's always the same thing I'm saying, all right? You're thinking unbiblically, you need to repent, and you need to now think biblically. And, now, and if you do that, you will find a way out of your troubles, out of your tro- out of this situation. You will find
0: your way into goodness. Stop thinking this way, think this way. One writer says, watching for his lies and always examining ourselves to make certain that we are not believing those lies
1: is what we need to do on a daily basis to turn away from his attacks. (laughs) So, so this is, this is why you know I've said this a million times. That's an exaggeration. I've said it a lot. I said it a
0: lot that this book is it, baby. You gotta know this book. You gotta know this book. You are surrounded by the lies of Satan. You have absorbed them
1: in your life. You wanna see him bring you down? Then have no defense against it because you don't know the Word of God and what the truth is. The only way you're gonna resist him is by standing firm in the faith, the Christian faith, the the truths of the gospel, of God, of Jesus Christ. The truths about you. The truths about your marriage. The truths about your parenting. The truths about your money. The
0: truths about your heart. That's the only way. I'm so, I'm so broken to watch people get sucked into his lies. So, I can't do it. I can't. All I can do is keep turning you back to the Word of God.
1: That is your power. That is your strength. There, there, and only there can you resist Him. He is tricky. He is cunning.
0: He tells lies in a way that they sound good.
1: Oh, you know, you all love your wife stuff.
0: That's for sappy Christians. And yet that is the path to peace in your home. You see? I hope you see. I hope. I know some of you do. I hope the rest of you will. Take every everything that you think, every philosophy, everything you believe
1: in every area of your life, beloved. And compare it against the Word of God. If it does not say the same thing, discard it immediately and embrace the Word of God. And then spend more time, more of your life, giving yourself to knowing this book. Jeremy, I'm too, I'm tired. Okay, I get it. Yeah, your flesh. It doesn't want you to read this. Because as long as you don't know this, then it can continue to have its way with you with these lies. You know, reading the Bible is not like something you do so that God will be happy with you, He loves
0: you. Reading the Bible is your survival. That's why I love this book. Where would I be without it? I'd be in trouble. Okay? So. love this book,
1: and force yourself to bring yourself under it. Let it, let it have its way with you. Instead of all the junk and lies and deceptions that are coming at you from every angle in this world, stand up against them. Be wary of them. People coming to the Bible are like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe, we'll see, I don't know. Why you need to be that way with everything else you hear. Don't be that way with the word of God. Come before the word of God humbly and say, Whatever it says, this is my good. This is God's glory. This is his love. Yeah? Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. So the 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 other second thing, I'll do this quick, that I wanted to address. I should have just done a part two, Thomas, but we're gonna get there because we can't walk away, we can't walk away without looking at the God of all grace, just to dip in there. But 1 Peter 5, 9, I didn't get to the last statement. So let's just look at it real quick. Resist him, firm in your faith. And then the Apostle Peter says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Uh, easily, this, I mean, just quickly, this, should, this last statement should basically be understood as further encouragement to stand firm. All right? The idea is stand firm knowing this. All right? And knowing this will somehow be an encouragement. So knowing what exactly? Well... At minimum, it is that they are not alone in their sufferings, all right? So this is not some unique thing that's uh, occurring to you because you're messed up or something. This is the reality for the people of God, and your brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing the same kind of suffering. So know that, that with them you stand, and stand firm in your faith, okay? So at minimum, it means that, but I think it means a little more than that. And it's a translation issue. Let me show you. The New, New American Standard Bible translates it like this. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished or completed by your brethren who are in the world. It's interesting. So there's a note in another Bible, a good Bible called the NET, and it points out that this verb being a translated accomplished, accomplished, uh, or experienced in other translations, just experienced, it carries the nuance of that, to accomplish or complete. So that Bible translation suggests, and I agree, looking at it, that what is being emphasized is not just their experience of it, but their faithful endurance in suffering. It is, it is being completed, it is being accomplished among your brethren. What? This suffering is being worked out and completed and brought uh, to an end. So they translate it like this resist him, the NET, strong in your faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring. I think that's a better translation. Not just that, yes, they're experiencing, so I have a camaraderie with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not weird. This is what we can expect. Uh, the Christians throughout the world will face these kind of situations because they're living for, the, for Jesus Christ, but they're not just experiencing, they're enduring. They're enduring, and that to me would give me encouragement to stand firm. My others and brothers and sisters in Christ, they're they're experiencing and enduring, and I must endure too, along with them. So, (laughs) my summary then of verses 8 and 9 would be this. This is how I would say, say it. I wrote it out. Dear suffering, persecuted Christians, know that we have a very dangerous adversary who is out and about looking for someone to destroy. So stay alert. Be watchful, and when he attacks, don't panic or begin to lose hope or question your Christian faith, and be tempted to turn away from faithfully following the one true God, but rather resist the devil by standing firm on the truths of God's word, on the truths of your Christian faith, on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing also that your brothers and sisters
0: throughout the world are faithfully enduring similar suffering. How and why are they faithfully
1: enduring similar suffering? How and why are they faithfully enduring similar suffering?
0: By the grace of God. By the grace of God. And that brings us right into verse 10
1: and 11. Look there with me. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself (laughs) restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Peter breaks out in praise to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, beloved, here we go. I have a little time. The very first thing I want to call your attention to, the very first thing is the order of the words of verse 10. That is as they appear in the original Greek manuscripts. In those manuscripts, Peter's sentence, or verse 10, does not begin with the phrase, and after you have suffered a little while. But rather, it begins with the phrase "and the God of all grace," and the God of all grace." The NIV and several other translations in this case, I think, better reflect, certainly, the original order of the Greek words. And realize, translation make choices make choices sometimes based on what they think is more readable. But I prefer the NIV in this case, uh, holding more to the original word order. It goes like this, NIV, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you. And then he goes on with those verbs. Now, translating the passage either way is fine and good, okay? Either way. It's not that it's changing the meaning of the passage. It's not. You're gonna get, you can get to the meaning either way. But I prefer the NIV because I think, here's why, because I think it helps us a little by the NIV holding to the original word order to definitely not miss or gloss over what I believe Peter wanted to emphasize and focus his troubled Christian readers' minds and hearts on. And that is on the wonderful, assuring, comforting and confidence-building reality
0: that their God is the God of all grace. See, listen, pressing further, Peter could have just simply said this, and God,
1: after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He could have just said that.
0: That would have been adequate. It would have been good. would have been helpful. But he didn't say that. Rather, he began
1: his sentence by referring to God as the God of all grace. And then, looking at it, he paused to remind them of his incredible grace, God's by speaking of God's incredible saving grace in calling them to his eternal glory in Christ. You're reminding them you are benefactors of this grace, of this God of all grace. And obviously, what a wonderful and comforting thing that is for Peter to highlight here for those suffering saints to whom he was writing. Yeah? And then, continuing on, Peter assures them that after they have suffered for a little while, which, by the way, clearly stands in stark contrast to the eternal glory that the God of grace has called them to, right? Do you see that? The God of all grace has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, but after you have suffered a little while, contrast is there. It's meant to be there. And after they have suffered a little while, God then, the God of all grace, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish them, which basically, beloved, are all acts of God's sustaining grace poured out on his chosen and beloved children who in his saving grace he has called to his eternal glory in Christ. In Christ, So listen, God's actions towards us, all of God's dealings with his children, those in Christ, are grounded in who he
0: is. And who is he? Who is he? The God of all grace. So
1: let's talk about that quickly, that title. It is a title for God that appears only here in the New Testament but one that should be no surprise to anyone who has read through the Scriptures. Because they would know, if they have done that, that it definitely reflects who our great and glorious God is. He is indeed the God of all grace. And concerning the word grace, because it's sometimes just kind of thrown around, but concerning the word grace here, you can think of that word as the undeserved favor of God. Or God's kindness and care given or shown to us in our unworthiness. He is the
0: God who pours out his favor and kindness on the unworthy. On the unworthy. Us, that is the God he is. Beloved, we don't deserve, nor can we earn God's favor. Not now, not ever. Not now, not ever. We cannot earn God's favor. This is very unlike the pagan gods. And if we can't earn it, we can't do anything to lose it if we have it in Christ. You hear me? Those that are His have His grace in full now and forever. Because He is the
1: God of all grace, and we must not forget that or let any false lie of the enemy change our minds about that or dilute that truth in any way. God is for the Christian and always will be for all eternity. He is the God of all grace. The fact that he is the God of all grace, Bible commentators say, means that he is the source or possessor and giver of all grace. One writer says this, just a few more minutes. He is not the God of a little bit of grace. He is not the God of a lot of grace. He is the God of all grace. His grace is like the ocean. That unmerited kindness and favor is like the ocean a limitless supply that keeps breaking over our lives time and time again. It will never run out. That is the God we serve. There is no end to his grace, no end to his favor, no end to his kindness toward us who are in Christ. And truths like this are the very things we must hold on to
0: in the midst of our trials and tribulations. There's not anything wrong here. I live in the grace of God.
1: His kindness is being poured out on me. Even as we went through and looked at that situation with the suffering we learn that even that suffering was being used by God according to his perfect plans and purposes and grace to achieve a wonderful thing a good thing to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ that is his grace I am never outside of his grace as a believer in Jesus Christ I'm always in it and it's always being poured out on me I have it I'm sorry And as I said a few moments ago, After Peter refers to the God as the God of all grace, what does he do but stop to remind them of God's incredible saving grace? You want to wonder if you're in his grace or not? Do you remember it was his grace that called you into his eternal glory in Christ? My goodness, kindness couldn't be any greater than that. A sinner, an enemy of God, and God worked and called you into his eternal glory Into his eternal glory? (laughs) Struggling Christian, you've been called into his eternal glory. You serve the God of all grace. Don't forget it for a moment. So he reminds them of that, this undeserved, unearned favor and kindness and calling them into the eternal glory in Christ and placing them on the road to glory, which, by the way, is not a smooth road. It's not a smooth road. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said. My grace has put you on this road. The road's not smooth, but you can be sure that the road ends in paradise. You think about the courage and the confidence it gives a a Christian then being persecuted and struggling for their faith in Christ. And finally, two verses, because as uh, Terry said, the best part of the sermon is the word of God. So let's close with two of them. And we'll come back and pick this up next week. Please be here. I'm not here at the school. So, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. And Paul says this, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner. His prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. Here we go again. By the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Beloved, it is his grace that has saved us and called us to this holy life, but it is that
0: very holy life that brings about persecution and a fallen world, living in rebellion against the Holy One. He goes on to say, not because of anything we have done, it's grace. We didn't earn
1: it, we couldn't earn it. We can't hold on to it. God holds us in it but because of his own purpose and grace. And get this, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus for the beginning of time. <laughs> you God, grace on reserve for you. It's stored up for you. God, according to his good purposes and his saving, electing love, chose to pour out his grace on you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and he stored it up in Christ before the world was even created, before you even came into existence. He had it there for you. This grace has always been there. My goodness, before the world was even created, you were given saving grace. You have his kindness. You have his favor. Christian, Christian. Finally, Ephesians 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. (laughs) Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's grace. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious, say it, Grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. Grace, the forgiveness of our trespasses, grace according, and in case you weren't sure, he says it, according to the riches of his, what? Grace, which he lavished, which he heaped up. Upon us, because he is the God of all grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So, to the troubled Christian, to the suffering Christian, what kind of God are you serving? A God of wrath? A God of mess up one time and almost smack you across the head? A God that doesn't even really care about you. He just kind of left you out there on your own. Figure things out for yourself. A God that just gets frustrated at the littlest thing and
0: then punishes you. What kind of God are you serving? The God of all grace. The God of
1: all grace. And you need to think biblically and have the right perspective as you consider that thing. And that's what Peter do. He's drawn their minds back and the God of all grace, and the first thing, this is what he wants to say to these suffering Christians. The God of all grace who has, here's his grace, in case you forgot, who called you into his eternal glory, Christ. You
0: have God's favor. You are a benefactor. And he has set you on a course
1: to paradise, to live with him forever. That is what enables a man or a woman in Christ to stand and to get back up and to stand again and to endure the temporary sufferings of this world. Yeah, you'll suffer for a little while, but even there, there, God's sustaining grace will come in because he is the God of all grace, and he will lift you up, and he will heal your wounds, and he will empower you to stay the course. That is the confidence a Christian needs. Not in themselves, not in their power, but in the power of God who is the God of all grace. And beloved, if you do not know that grace because you've never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, come and taste it. Come and drink it. It is free to all who will come to him. If you don't know his grace, then you know what you know? His wrath. The Bible says you live under it right now. You don't know that grace, not the saving grace of God. But you can. You can know it if you will bow your heart, humbly drop down before him and confess that you are a sinner before this God and you do deserve his wrath and you do deserve to be punished. But... You know he is the God of all grace. And you see that in Jesus Christ sending his beloved son to take your sin upon himself. To pay that penalty that you owe. That you might be forgiven and made right with God and live with him forever. And call out to him and say, save me, save me, save me. And you too will then know the God of all grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, save the lost among us. Save the lost among us. And for those that are yours, may we meditate on this truth that you are not the God of wrath
0: to us. You are the God of all grace.